Yeah, excellent. And today we come to faithfulness. That's right. Now, uh, faithfulness, I reckon, to me sounds like a bit of an old-fashioned kind of word. The other fruits of the Spirit are the sorts of words that we just use every day. Love, joy, peace, patience, everyday kinds of words. Uh, But in a world that values novelty and change and excitement and adventure, faithfulness can sound like it's a bit out of date. And yet, as we've just seen in our clip from the Lord of the Rings, faithfulness is actually one of the most important and beautiful qualities that a person can have. And it's certainly the kind of quality that we hope for in our friends. You know, maybe more than anything else, we hope that our friends will be faithful. And actually other people too. We, we hope that our family members will be faithful. We hope that the people we work with will be faithful. So what does it mean to be faithful? Uh, there's another moment in The Lord of the Rings which captures it well. Uh, Frodo has been complaining that there is uh, no one that he can trust. And uh, Mary replies like this. He says, um, it all depends on what you want. You can trust us to stick to you through thick and thin to the bitter end. And you can trust us to keep any secret of yours closer than you keep it yourself. But you cannot trust us to let you face trouble alone and go off without a word where your friends photo. Anyway, there it is. We know most of what Gandalf has told you. We know a good deal about the ring. We are horribly afraid, but we are going with you or following you like hounds. That's what it means to be a faithful friend. Uh, And the Bible says the same kind of thing. We read in the book of Proverbs this description of what a true friend looks like in Proverbs 18 verse 24. It says, some friends play at friendship, but a true friend sticks closer than one's nearest kin. So what does it mean to be faithful? Well, it means things like this. It means that you'll be, you're, you're reliable and dependable. It means that you're loyal and committed. Uh, It means that you do what you say you will will do. You stick by your word and you stick close to other people. Uh, You stick with them over time and you stick with them under difficult circumstances. You know, faithfulness is Samwise Gamgee charging into the deep water even though he can't swim because he has made a promise never to leave Frodo. Maybe you have benefited from faithfulness like that. Maybe you've had a friend who stuck to you when no one else would. Or maybe you've had a mentor who really believed in you and just never gave up on you. Maybe when you felt like giving up. Maybe you've had a colleague who covered for you when you were under the pump, or maybe they covered for you when you'd made a mistake. Or maybe you've got a family member who you know just always has your back. That's what faithfulness is. And the Bible has a lot to say about faithfulness. In fact, it's probably not exaggerating to say this, that the Bible is actually the story of God's faithfulness to us. That's the overarching story that holds the Bible together, that God is faithful to us. And because he made us to be like him, he calls us to be faithful too. And so this is our prayer tonight, that we will get a clearer and more beautiful picture of how God has been faithful to us And that that might help us to be more faithful to him and to others. Make sense? We're all on board. We're all awake. Excellent. 
Uh, how do we do this? Uh, three things. Uh, you know, beautiful alliteration. We have a problem, a promise, and a practice tonight. We're going to think about why is it hard to be faithful. We're going to think about what makes faithfulness possible. And then we're going to think about how do we actually do it? How can we grow to be more faithful? So let's start by thinking about the problem. Why is it hard to be faithful? Uh, earlier we read this strange parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 25. It's about God's call for us to be faithful. But I've got to say, this is not an easy parable to understand. There's lots of things in it that I don't understand. And it would be very easy to think that Jesus is saying in this parable that if we're not faithful to God, then he won't be faithful to us. And I just think there's actually no way that Jesus can simply be saying that because everywhere else in the Bible, we see that God is faithful when people are unfaithful. So it's got to be a little bit more complicated than that. But let's take a look at the parable, because even though it is a bit confusing, it gives us a great insight into why it can be hard to be faithful. Uh, the story starts with a man, and he must be important and wealthy uh, in uh, the Roman Empire. You'd, you'd, that's the kind of person you would expect would have slaves or servants. Uh, there were lots of slaves in the Roman Empire. The whole economy was built on them. And so the man's heading off on a journey, and before he leaves, he calls his three slaves together, and he tr entrusts each of them with a large sum of money, a different amount of money for each one, depending on their ability to manage the money. Uh, the word talent is, is the money here. It's a, a bit confusing because we think that talent is an ability. Um, but talent in Jesus' day was a unit of money, and it was a really significant, a really large amount of money. Um, it's very hard to do the actual dollar conversion into Aussie dollars from ancient talents. Partly it's just a really long period of time, and also I'm not an economist. But also um, talents, the value of talents could vary. They could be made out of gold or silver or bronze, I think. I said copper this morning, I think it's, anyway, one or the other. And of course, the value of a talent depended on what it was actually made out of and how large it was. But we do know that talents were a considerable amount of money. Um, it would take a laborer around 20 years to earn one talent. So if you want to do some sort of conversion there in our terms, if we wanted to assume that maybe a laborer on a fairly low wage might earn 50 grand a year, then a talent, I think, would be the equivalent of about a million dollars. Does that sound right? So it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money to entrust to your slaves. But, like I said, slaves in the Roman Empire, were, they, they could actually be very important. They could, were often given uh, quite a lot of authority. So the master entrusts the money to his slaves and then he goes off on his journey. And the first slave who got five talents, he invests it and he gets a great return. He doubles his money. The second slave who got two talents, he invests it and he gets a good return. He doubles his money as well. But the third slave who only got one talent, he doesn't invest it. He hides the money. He's afraid of losing it. And so he doesn't take any risk at all and he gets no return at all. And then the master of the house returns. And he just pours out praise on those first two servants. Did you hear it? Well done, good and trustworthy slave. Or you might, have, uh, might be more familiar with it in the NIV translation. I certainly am. Um, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Yeah. But then he comes to his third slave. And when the slave explains why he didn't invest the money, the master of the house is furious. Notice for a moment that the master of the house doesn't focus on whether or not the slaves made a profit. He doesn't seem to be concerned with their financial 
acumen or their financial performance. No, he focuses on whether they were faithful. Did they do what they were entrusted to do? Did they invest the money? And so see, the problem for the third slave then is, is not just that he didn't make money. That's not so much the problem. It's that he wasn't faithful. And so the master throws him out of the house. And we're going to come back to that later. But for the moment, why do you think the third slave found it so hard to be faithful? Fortunately, he tells us. It's right there in verse 24. He says, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping what you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed, so I was afraid. That's why he didn't uh, invest the money. That's why he hid it. He was afraid of his master. He was afraid that if he didn't perform and, and get some great financial return, his master might throw him out. He was afraid that if he lost money, his master would be angry. He didn't trust his master to be faithful to him. And so he was unfaithful in return. And so here's the reason why he didn't invest the money. It was fear that drove him to be unfaithful. And so that's worth just letting that kind of percolate around in your, your head a little bit. I, I wonder what role fear plays in your struggle to be faithful. seems to be a significant thing because as we turn over to the passage that we read from Hebrews, you might want to do that now, Hebrews chapter 2, uh, starting at verse 14, we find that fear is present in that passage as well. This time it's the fear of death. So I'm going to read it to you from verse 14. It says, Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same thing so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Now, how does fear enslave people? Well, you see, if, if, if you see death as a big full stop on life, then, of course, all you've got to live for is the here and now. And so you're going to keep cramming your life full of new things and all sorts of exciting experiences. It's going to, until that desire to just fill your life with, you know, novelty and change and everything that your heart desires, that takes over. That's actually how death enslaves. Because if you've only got this, the fear of death enslaves. If you've only got this life to live for, you'll always be afraid of missing out, the old FOMO. And so you'll find it difficult to be faithful. See, if you're afraid of missing out, you'll find it difficult to be faithful. FOMO pushes us in a direction that's the opposite of faithfulness. So just think about that for a minute. What's the kind of fruit? We talk about the fruit of the Spirit. What's the kind of fruit that FOMO produces? Well, if I want something, I'll get it. So I'm afraid of missing out. Or if it's new, I need it. If it's old, I'll just discard it. If it's boring, I'll move on. And if there might be better options out there floating around, well, then I'm not going to lock myself in and commit. FOMO produces a really consumer approach to life a consumerist approach to life. 
And it values, it encourages us to value the immediate over the long term. It encourages us to value comfort over sacrifice, satisfaction over service, finding happiness over keeping commitment, never sticking with anything. But you can see why this consumer approach exerts such a powerful pull on human hearts. If we're afraid that God will let us down, if we don't trust that God has our backs, if we're not confident that he will stick with us even through death, then we'll always be afraid of missing out. And so we'll chase satisfaction here and now. Do you see how that works? Fear cultivates unfaithfulness. And that's why faithfulness is so hard. We're, we're afraid of missing out. That brings us to our second point, though. This is the good bit. God's promise of faithfulness. Here's what makes faithfulness possible. Um, as we open up the book of Hebrews, it's kind of like we're opening a story right in the middle, you know, just opening up at chapter 22 for some reason. So much has happened in the lead up to the events uh, before the events described here. The, the whole of the Old Testament is really the background for Hebrews. And so you get hints of that in this passage as well. You might have noticed references to Abraham from Genesis and references to the priests making sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. References to Moses. They're all references to Israel's history. And so if we just dive straight into Hebrews here, then there's a danger that this passage might not make much sense to us. Because we first need to understand what God promised to us in the Old Testament before we can understand how God kept those promises to us by sending Jesus. Does that make sense? So let's start. We are going to go for a very quick skim through the whole of the Old Testament. Old Testament overview in two minutes. Um, I haven't timed it. could be 20 for all I know. But um, we'll see. It's not 20. Um, okay, so what happens at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates a man and a woman and he places them in a garden paradise and he provides everything they could ever need. But in Genesis 3, the serpent comes along and he deceives them. He makes them afraid that they're missing out. They're missing out. So they don't trust God to provide and they are unfaithful. As a result, sin and death and fear and guilt and shame and judgment become an inescapable part of the human story. And so then what we see through the rest of Genesis 1 to 11, in Genesis 3 to 11, humanity just keeps spiraling further and further away from God into unfaithfulness. But then God promises to do something about it. In Genesis chapter 12, he speaks to an old man called Abram or Abraham. Abraham was married to Sarah. She was very old as well. And even though they don't have any children, God makes them a promise. Listen to what he says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. He says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, Abraham's going to become a father, God says, but not just a father to, to a son, but a father of a whole nation. And the whole promise just sounds so ridiculous that Sarah bursts out laughing. But God kept this promise. Abraham and Sarah had their baby, and over time, their descendants grow in number. Eventually, they end up in Egypt. Why do they end up in Egypt? They're hungry. They're 
hangry, I don't know. There, um, there's a famine in the land where they live, and, there's, and the Egyptians have done a really good job of um, preparing for the famine. And so they go to Egypt to get food, and then they put down roots there, and they keep on having babies, and they keep on growing and growing and growing until the king of Egypt, the pharaoh, looks around, and he's worried that these foreigners are going to take over his land. kind of sounds familiar, kind of political narrative, doesn't it? And so Pharaoh puts these Israelites into slavery. And so in the book of Exodus, don't worry, we're not going to go through book by book. This would be very slow. We're going to skim very fast as we get to the end. In the book of Exodus, the Israelites are in slavery and we hear them crying out to God for help. And God hears their cries and he remembers his promise. And so what does he do? He sends Moses to bring them out of slavery. And he promises them that he's going to stick with them through thick and thin. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I'm going to be faithful, that's what he's saying. And so to cut a long story short, the whole rest of the Old Testament, basically the history of Israel is that they grumble and they complain and they fight each other and the nation splits in two and they worship idols and they don't trust God and they're afraid of missing out and they think God's ripping them off and they keep spiraling and spiraling further and further away from God, their whole history is marked by unfaithfulness. Eventually, God allows their enemies to conquer them and to take them off to be strangers in a foreign land, but God has made a promise to bless them and to bless the nations through them. And so that brings us to the book of Hebrews. Phew, how was that? Old Testament in two minutes. Hebrews tells us how God kept his promise. So let's have another look at it, uh, and we'll go a bit more slowly than we went last time, so we'll try to kind of dig a bit deeper. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. The children there is us, God's, God's children, The he there is Jesus, that's who he's talking about. And so he's saying, since we share flesh and blood with each other, we all share, we're all flesh and blood, right? Jesus shared flesh and blood with us. Do you see how ridiculously crazy that is? Jesus Christ, in the previous chapter of Hebrews, was described as the eternal son of God. He's the one who has lived with his father in heaven for all of eternity. But he is so committed to us, to you, that he chose to be born with flesh and blood, which means not just that he shares the same kind of body, physicality, physiology, biology, all those sort of words that we have. No, it means that he shares the same kind of life. He experiences the same kind of things that we experience. He he chose to make our story his story. Jesus entered our world where, what? Where sin and death and fear and guilt and shame and judgment are an inescapable reality. And he willingly chose to experience those things in our place. Jesus shared our flesh and blood to make our story his story and to make his story our story. That's what he was doing when he died on the cross. He was bearing our sin and death and guilt and fear and shame and judgment. He was dying the death we should have died 
so that we could receive the life that God had promised all those years ago. Thousands of years ago, the life God had promised back to Abraham and then to Moses and then to the Israelites. So think about it this way. It's in Jesus that we see God comes charging into the deep waters after us. Because he's made a promise to stick with us to the end. It's in Jesus that God defeats our sin so that nothing can ever separate us from him. That's what it's saying there in verse 17. Jesus makes this sacrifice of atonement and that takes our sins away. And so this is how Jesus, uh, this is how God, through Jesus, destroys the one who has the power of death. The devil's power depends on two things. His ability to deceive and his ability to accuse. He tries to deceive us just like he tried to deceive Adam and Eve in the garden. He tries to make us dissatisfied with God, convince us that we're um, uh, missing out. Give us a fear of missing out. Make us think that God won't provide. But in Jesus' death, we see that God has provided himself for us. And so we can be sure that God is faithful so the devil can't deceive us anymore. And the devil tries to accuse us. What does he do? He points to our sin. He exposes our sin. He highlights our sin. He's trying to say, your sin is so bad that God's going to cast you out. But where is in the parable that Jesus told about the talents, the slave who wasn't faithful was cast out? We know that if we put our trust in Jesus, we will never be cast out. Because it was Jesus who was cast out into the darkness for us. And so the death of Jesus proves that God's faithfulness is stronger than our unfaithfulness. Proves that God will not let you go. He will stick with you through thick and thin to the bitter end. And so this brings us to our third point because that is the key to how we can grow to be more faithful. How do we do it? Well, according to the writer of Hebrews, we do it by focusing on the faithfulness of Jesus. That's what he says there in Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Let's have a look. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, brothers and sisters, holy partners in a heavenly calling, consider that Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, was faithful to the one who appointed him. The word consider there is a like sit up and take notice kind of word. Pay attention and have a think about this, he's saying. If you want to be, uh, grow to be more faithful, then have a look at how faithful Jesus is. Fix your eyes and your mind and your heart on him because when you see the faithfulness of Jesus, you can be sure that God has kept his promise to redeem, that God will stick to you like glue. Fix your eyes on Jesus. That's how you grow in faithfulness. Eugene Peterson says the same thing in this fantastic book he's written. I'd wholeheartedly recommend you totally should buy it tomorrow and read it. It's so good. This is what he says. He says, the central reality for Christians is the personal, unalterable, persevering commitment that God makes to us. The central reality isn't the commitment that we make to God. The central reality, the rock, is the commitment he makes to us. Perseverance is not the result of our determination. 
It's the result of God's faithfulness. We survive in the way of faith, not because we have extraordinary stamina, but because God is righteous, because God sticks with us. Christian discipleship is a process, therefore, of paying more and more attention to God's righteousness and less and less attention to our own. You see the point, what he's saying? He's saying if you want to grow to be more faithful, don't spend too much time focusing on looking in at your own faithfulness or lack of faithfulness. No, fix your eyes on the faithfulness of God because then you'll no longer be afraid of death. Then you'll no longer fear missing out. Then you will no longer need to live for satisfaction here and now. And when you are ruled by that kind of confidence in the faithfulness of God, then you can be faithful. When you're not afraid of missing out, then you can sacrifice things that you desire to be committed to someone else. Then you can stay loyal to the old instead of rushing around and chasing after the new. Then you can keep your commitments even when saying yes to one thing means saying no to a whole bunch of other things. You can, we can do all this without a fear of missing out because if God has our back, if God sticks with us even through death, then we will never miss out on anything we need. And as we fix our eyes on the faithfulness of Jesus, then we can live this life looking forward to the day when we will hear God say, like the master in that parable, he will say to us, well done good and faithful servant. Imagine how it'll feel to hear God say that to you. So how do we do this in practice? What does it actually look like? How do we fix our eyes on the faithfulness of Jesus? Uh, it is hard to stop and reflect on things in the busyness of every day uh, with piles of homework, with our deadlines and exams and social engagements and lots of commitments and responsibilities and choices and distractions. The days and the weeks and the months can pass so quickly and sometimes we realize we haven't given Jesus much thought at all. But the writer of Hebrews says that God has given us a resource to help us keep fixing our eyes on Jesus. Do you know what the resource is? It's pretty awesome. It's us. This is how you fix your eyes on Jesus. You do it by working together. That's how you grow in faithfulness. That's why the writer of Hebrews there calls us, did you see what he calls us? You are holy partners in a heavenly calling in chapter 3, verse 1. He's saying, you're in it together. You share this calling, and so you can help each other. It's just like when Mary says to Frodo, remember what he said? He said, you're not meant to face trouble alone to go off without a word because we're your friends Frodo and so the writer of Hebrews keeps saying time and time again throughout the whole book the key to growing in faithfulness is to keep living in Christian community so that you can keep helping each other fix your eyes on the faithfulness of Jesus that's what he says just a few verses below the passage we read in chapter 3 verse 12 see that he says, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've become partners of Christ if we hold our first confidence firm 
to the end. See that exhort one another? He's saying encourage each other daily to look at the faithfulness of Jesus. Do it every day, he says. That's a massive challenge, don't you think? Because the busyness of life just pulls us in so many different directions. We walk out the church of a night and sometimes it can feel like we just scatter all over the place, like blown by the wind, like those little dandelion seeds floating in all different directions. But the writer of Hebrews says this, no, when God sends us out into the world, he actually sends us out together. And so our challenge is to build in patterns and rhythms in our life where we can keep encouraging each other to fix our eyes on Jesus. We have a whole lot of ways we can do this as a church community. We have structured ways, fellowship groups. Next year we're going to have missional communities, DNA groups, structures like that. We have a whole lot of unstructured ways as well. Um, You know, going out for dinner after church, catching up with someone for a coffee or a run around the bay if you're super crazy during the week. We have also technology at our disposal. We can actually use that, you know, to our advantage. One way of staying in touch, how do you do this exhort every day? Start an instant messaging group and share prayer points. Remind each other that you're praying for each other every day. There's not just one way for us to do this. But this is a great time for us to think about it as we come to the end of this year and we start looking towards next year. It's a great chance for us to think about these are the kinds of rhythms that we need in our lives, not just for our own sake, but because we are called to encourage each other. We are partners in this heavenly calling. So we're called to encourage each other to fix our eyes on the one who is faithful. When Jesus is our rock, uh, when he's our foundation, when he is 